Hello, and welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 66. I'm Kay, here with my co-host, Taz. Hello. Today we'll be discussing the 22nd episode of season 3, Dog with Two Bones. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Dog with Two Bones. John deals with an imagined Earth future while the crew deals with the immediacy of an overaggressive leviathan preventing them from interning Talon's remains. As the crew splits up for real, viewers wonder about the future of Farscape. The season finale of season three. So while this episode is not as wrenching as the season two finale, we do have some similarities in that we get another funeral, this time for Talon, and another round of everyone saying goodbye, which we've seen in the season one and season two finales, as everyone goes their separate ways. Except this time, the going the separate ways sticks, and people actually are splitting off from each other. Moya is a major character who's driving the plot, which I think is really cool. I really love it when she gets to come into play. And I think everybody in the episode gets a little bit of a moment to shine. However, the real emotional center of this episode is still John Crichton and Aaron Sun and where they stand with each other. And it is amazing and wrenching and awesome and, you know, makes me cry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I feel like the ending of this episode really echoes the ending of season one. You know what I mean? We'll get there. But I think when you watch the ending of this episode, you're like, ooh, this is what season two's finale was kind of missing, was this actual life and death situation. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And it does leave you hanging. You know, you are kind of wondering, is this it? Is this the end? Yeah. I mean, season two did have that life or death, but it had it within the episode as opposed to at the end of the episode. So while season two, I think, is actually a harder and more difficult and more more emotionally wrenching episode than this one is, I think the season three finale has a lot more humor in it and it's just a little bit lighter. It's still a really nice cliffhanger that they end on of, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. It felt a little bit more reminiscent to me of the season one finale. Yes. Yeah, that was what I was going for is, you know, the season one finale ending with Dargo and John hanging out in space, you know, and you aren't sure how they can even be saved and Dargo running out of breath. That's what this ending feels like to me is just that moment of complete terror as viewers. And even to me, like I've seen this before and I have it on DVDs and my immediate reaction was like, I have to know what happens next. And I almost <laughs> reached for the episodes for season four because I was so desperate to find out. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's a good one. And this episode actually really starts off a lot slower than you would think for a season finale of Farscape, because it starts off with John imagining him getting married to Aaron. And this whole episode is interspersed with his fantasies of an Earth life and of his friends on Earth. And you don't 100% understand where this is going until the very end when he has a metaphor that we'll get to. But it also introduces one of my favorite characters who until next season, so viewers don't yell at us, we know exactly what her name is, but we're going to call her the old woman. The old woman is on Moya. So I want to play a clip at the very beginning of the episode because John has just had this fantasy of Aaron in a bridal store wearing dresses and, you know, he's there with her. It's kind of this happily ever after fantasy that he's having. And it's interrupted by Chiana and the old woman. Hey, old woman, why didn't you leave with the others? Because I knew the souffle would charm you. Chowder. You said it was chowder. I can make you a chowder? Pep, how is that woman? I thought she was with you. So (laughs) she just kind of pops into the middle of their conversation out of nowhere, no explanation. And then there's this running joke throughout the entire episode of everyone asking each other, who is she and what is she doing here? And it's one of the things that just makes this episode really light. And at first you're like, oh, she's only there for the comedic relief. But as the episode evolves, she actually does take a larger role. Mm Mm-hmm. Viewers will also recognize that, much like other actors in Farscape, she has also been in Mad Max movies. She was in Fury Road. 
and we love her forever because she's amazing. So, yeah, that's that's the old woman. And to give her appearance a little bit of a description, she has three eyes. She has an eye in the center of her forehead. She's got really long, dry, spindly hair. She's wearing kind of muddy colored robes and she's taken over the center chamber and there's like vegetables and fruit and food all over the place and it's really a mess so she's kind of this this witch and i think she gets referenced as a witch at one point so it's kind of that stereotype of the the herbs and the then the moving around you know the prophecy and all those sorts of things mysteriousness uh that goes with it yeah I I love her. I'll be honest. She's one of those characters that I think because she's only in Farscape for essentially a season, she kind of gets a short shrift. But I think one of the interesting things about her is that she very easily could have been a replacement Zan. Like she Mm -hmm. could have been the actress that they brought on instead of Jewel to replace Zan. But instead... By having Jewel as the intermediary, they really give the old woman like space to grow and she becomes just an entirely different character, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, definitely. So at the beginning of the episode, one of the things that John and Chiana are talking about is Chiana's going to leave and go to join the Nabari resistance. And Dargo is also talking about leaving. He's going to go after Macdon. He and Aaron have a nice conversation as he's stocking up his ship with supplies. Aaron's, you know, giving him a hard time because she thinks he's taking too many supplies. (laughs) Um, And then there's another moment between Chiana and John where she's like, you know, I I didn't mean to hurt your feelings by saying you couldn't come with me. But, you know, you look like a peacekeeper and she's going to try and join the Nabari resistance and she has to blend in. And then Rigel, of course, got the political situation from the peacekeepers on his Hynerian empire. So he's planning to go back Mm -hmm. to Hyneria. And so that's what's going to happen after they bury Talon. Everyone's going to go their separate ways. But they arrive at the sacred space of the Leviathans where the Leviathans die or release the debris, in this case, of their loved ones. And there's another Leviathan there who's not very happy with the fact that Moya is going to come and try to bury Talon. Mm-hmm. And can I just make a little semantic note? We're going to say bury, even though there's nothing to do with earth or land or anything like that. And that was the one little semantic thing that kind of bugged me during this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't they come up with a different way of saying that? But oh well. yeah. So this Leviathan who is not super happy... She actually ends up attacking Moya, and she's a lot bigger than Moya because this is when, again, we're reminded that Moya is a relatively young Leviathan. She's a lot bigger than Moya, and she very specifically attacks a part of Moya that takes Moya out for most of the episode. The rest of the episode is pretty much in darkness with flashing lights, you know, and everything is down. And the reason she claims she's against letting Talon be buried in the sacred space is because Talon is part peacekeeper and three of her children were taken by the peacekeepers. But as we find out, that's not strictly true because she's also attacked other leviathans who have tried to come to this space yeah so they're very much in chaos mode of moya's hurt moya's badly hurt because leviathan knows right where to hit her to hit her critical systems and take them out and the crew is scrambling to fix things and pull things together so while all this is happening they're still kind of having these conversations about leaving. And so I want to get into some of the character stuff because this is actually a really rich character episode as well. And one of my favorite conversations actually happens between Jewel and Aaron, or she's fixing something that damaged the Prowler. When we get out of this, are you still going to look for that ex-peacekeeper unit? Can you keep the light on where I'm working? Sorry. I assassinate people, right? The squad aims to stop terrorism. And protect people. Didn't you learn anything on the command carrier? Want some advice? Look, Jill, I'm not Crichton's mate. I'm not tied to him in any way. In the short time I've known you, you've changed so much. I go backwards. Assassinating people? Seems like going backwards. Can you melt that? With what? There's no power yet. Thank you. (laughs) First of all, Aaron, I kind of love you for just, you know, getting yourself out of that conversation by literally twisting Jewel's arms so that she would scream and melt the thing. (laughs) Right? Uh, 
this whole episode has been a very sympathetic towards Jewel episode. Like she has some of my favorite conversations. She's beginning to play the voice of morality, but not in kind of the really grating way she was at the beginning of the season where it was just like, oh, I'm better than you and we don't do violence and da 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 da. Like in this episode, you really feel like she's trying to be empathetic towards people and she's trying to say, I know your better natures. And I know your better natures would not want you to do this. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. She's become much better integrated with the crew. And I kind of love that she gets to talk to Aaron here because the two of them have had very little screen time throughout the season. And and this might even be their first like real conversation that wasn't like, as you said, Jewel just yelling at people for doing what she thinks is wrong. Mm -hmm. And... I like how she says, even in the short time I've known you, you've changed so much. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of highlights a little bit like Aaron is still growing as a person. And even this outsider who hasn't been here, been there for the whole thing can see that and mm-hmm. see how she's she's con from when Jewel first met her in self-inflicted wounds, where Aaron was very much peacekeeper mode, getting things done because there was a serious crisis and intruders and all that sort of thing. Whereas here, Aaron is you know, so scarred by the events of the season and still dealing with the fallout of losing John and being with John again and all that, that, you know, she can see that there's this inner person to Aaron that she might not have seen before. And I really like that she is able to recognize that. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think she's right. You know, it would be going backwards for Aaron to start just going off and murdering people, even if it is for a good cause. Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely a step backwards for Aaron. And especially because she's using it explicitly to run away from John. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this isn't even Aaron making the decision of, I want to atone for my sins, or I want to do something good with my life. So I'm going to join a resistance, like she's going to go fight in a resistance against the peacekeepers, or even she's going to go fight for the Nabari resistance with Chiana. You know, this is her explicitly running away from John. And the way she's running away from John is by doing something that actually reminds me a lot of her mother. Because Mm -hmm. Aaron was also trained as a pilot. Aaron was not trained as an assassin. And yet she's going to join this group where explicitly what they do is they use their peacekeeper training to like kill other people that are bad. And sure, they're bad people. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it just, I don't know, it just really resonated with me that like this was kind of what the peacekeepers did to Zalek soon. And Aaron is doing it to herself to get over her own grief. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Like it takes a certain personality to be able to carry out that kind of work. And it's not her personality. She is not suited for it in the least. You know, killing in battle, killing with the honor of a warrior fighting as an army, that's one thing. But being cold-blooded about it is something else. Yeah. And the other thing with this comment about going backwards, what I like about it too, is that the writers of the show are like self-aware enough that there's this fear that Aaron and John's relationship will be reset. Mm-hmm. I remember discussions about this after The Choice first aired, that final scene where Aaron puts back on her peacekeeper clothing, you know, her hair's back in a ponytail. She tells her ghost of John that he has to go now, and it looks like she's very much locking herself back into the peacekeeper mentality, which she started out in. And that's what two seasons, two and a half seasons worth of mm-hmm. having her go out of her shell. And the fear that it's going to, that they were going to do what all television shows do and, you know, make it a will they won't they forever. But yeah, acknowledging that here really lets them go beyond that. And I really like that acknowledgement. Oh, yeah. And I think that as we get towards the end of the episode, we'll kind of get into the mess that is Aaron and John trying to figure out what they want and how to say goodbye to each other. But meanwhile, the crew is now discussing what to do about this deranged Leviathan that keeps trying to kill Moya. Like, even though she's severely damaged Moya, Moya is refusing to back down. She wants to bury Talon in this sacred space. And you have to feel for Moya here because Moya has been asked to give up so much, you know, and this is her son. And, you know, her son has has committed in the end, he committed the ultimate act of sacrifice in order to save the universe, you know, not just his crew, not just Moya's crew, not just his friends, not just his captain, but he he decided to save the universe and Moya thinks he deserves a good death. And so she actually makes a request of the crew. Apparently, Moya is not the first to be attacked by this rogue leviathan. Three others are already dead, still more grievously injured. 
apologies. Moya is now responding defensively on her own. Moya understands the grief of losing a child. However, this female's behavior is unacceptable. She asks for your help. She has our backing no matter what. Moya knows, which is why she feels comfortable making this request. Kill the rogue Leviathan. All right, old girl! <laughs> Not you. I'll prime my ship. Kill! Yes, Commander! Before she kills us! Hmm. Oh, I don't know how to feel about this scene. There's a lot of things going on. The One of the scenes in preceding this is Chiana talking to Moya, and... The rest of the crew is like, okay, this grief-stricken Leviathan is going to prevent us. She's bigger. She's badder. She's going to cripple Moya. We have to cut and run. And Aaron and John don't really want to, but they kind of agree. Rigel is the one who first voices the idea, and, and Aaron has a line of like, I can't believe I'm agreeing with Rigel. And then Chiana is sent to try and talk Moya into it. And, oh, God bless Chiana. But she's like, you know what I really think is you should... <laughs> we should drive this truck away. And it's this really great little Chiana <laughs> moment. And so we had come to this point where Moya's like, okay, that's what I want. I, I want to do that. And I think what I love most about this scene is you have this earlier conflict of them wanting to say, no, we have to run away. We can't fight her to saying, okay, if Moya wants to fight. That Leviathan is going down and we are with her 100%. And there's yeah. like no discussion of it. I mean, you have John kind of voicing a little bit of trepidation, but he doesn't actually argue it, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that this goes back to all the sacrifices that John has been asked to make, because I think in Moya, he kind of saw one other character who didn't like killing. John just has caused the rest of them to destroy a entire massive ship, you know, with lots of people on board. And not everybody got out, you mm -hmm. know? We actually find out later that the reason the old woman is on board is because the rest of them, the rest of the crew was ready to run. But John saw this life pod full of escaped prisoners, and he actually made them go back and save this pod. And that's how the old woman got on board. So I think that that's kind of where John is in this whole episode, is he's struggling with what he's done and what he probably will have to continue to do. And he just doesn't think it's right to have to kill somebody. But at the same time, I think partially what's conflating in his mind is that at this point, he's having all of these earth fantasies. And all the fantasies, they start off explicitly happy. Him and Aaron getting married in this fantasy wedding. Oh, my know. God, the wedding. I'm yeah. so glad my wedding wasn't like that. <laughs> oh, my God. It was like the most nightmare of a wedding. As, I mean, okay, I'm saying that as it is the stereotype of a perfect wedding. Yes. <laughs> you and I have both planned real weddings. And I am like, I avoided almost every single thing from that yes. wedding. Exactly. It's just like, it's a nightmare to plan. It's incredibly expensive. Weddings are like the wedding industrial complex is stupid. Right. And this is my last comment on the wedding thing. I think it's not a bad thing that they went for the stereotype because it allows anyone to relate to it because it is so classic and is such it has it has like the the bouquet throwing and the garter and you know the dancing and so it's it's like all the things people will recognize. So it doesn't matter how different our weddings were even though they were way better. And <laughs> <laughs> but it it is it is a central point for the audience to latch onto. Yeah. Okay. And ironically, I'm going to make a little bit of a metaphor here. <laughs> okay. So weddings like that tend to be very expensive and very stressful for the people. So it's like this superficial glaze of like perfectness. And then underneath was like months of stressful planning, expenses, and probably actual headaches on the day of. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And that's kind <laughs> of actually what ends up happening to John's fantasies as we go through, is that first, superficially, it appears to be everything he wants. But as we go through this, it's like more and more cracks appear. So actually, one of the things he's struggling with is he had this vision, this kind of unrealistic vision that maybe he was just going to stay on Moya with his friends forever. And then they would go to Earth and everything would be happy. And then he's realizing that that's not the reality. 
in both his fantasy and in this real world where now they're being asked to take this grieving Leviathan's life, you mm-hmm. know? So it's kind of like he's got a lot going on in his head this episode. Yeah. And that that what's going on in his head is also helped along by our old woman, who is also an herbalist in all senses of the word, who <laughs> blows some drug powder in his face. And, you know, he ends up shooting the up the up the center chamber because he thinks peacekeepers have attacked his internal wedding and he's reacting in the real world to it. And Dargo has to come and knock him out with the tongue thing. Mm-hmm. So one of the first cracks that you see in his fantasy is actually of Aaron. And as we know, Aaron is a stress point and we know she's leaving and he knows she's leaving. And Gianna even tells him, you have to ask her to go with you. And he's like, I can't. And, you know, he's mm-hmm. kind of right. He can't. They don't have any kind of status with each other in the way that he wants them to. So I'm going to play that that first dream conversation. So Aaron is on Earth. She's having coffee with Jack and John is eavesdropping. Don't you ever get bored living on the same planet, never going anywhere? No, what about living in a house? It's too quiet. There's no engine noise. We'll wait till summer when the air conditioning kicks on. John has this fantasy about us having kids and dogs and the pool and barbecues. Must seem a strange culture. Jack, I am miserable here and he just doesn't see it. Going to get married, end up like Betty Crocker. I just keep wondering when he's going to wake up. So remember, this is in John's head. And this is his fear about how Aaron will feel on Earth. And I think it's a legitimate fear. I mean, asking someone to settle down after having the life that she's led, that's a really big change. And it's a really big change to ask of somebody just for you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's kind of bookended by like a couple other Aaron things, which is the first one is after she's chosen the wedding dress, he kind of says to he hands her his his credit card and he says, okay, you have to do this. And she tries to say charge it, but she just can't say it right. You know, she's not getting the sounds right. And the woman, you know, the star clerk looks really confused. And I'm just kind of like, dude, how rude. She's literally holding out the credit card. Like, you know what to do. Like, <laughs> as as somebody who has both been in a country where I don't speak the language and who also deals a lot with second language learners, I'm like, you know, I don't know. I just felt like it was really rude. But that's just a side side point for me. <laughs> the point of the whole thing was to make Aaron feel really uncomfortable and to point out that as much as John is imagining, like, she's going to get her wedding dress and then we're going to get married and then we're going to have a dog and a pool and it's going to be great. The reality is her life is not one that lends itself towards Earth domesticity. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's already recognizing that in this fantasy, even before it gets amped up to Eleventy with uh, the old woman's drugs. Mm-hmm. So he has all these these fears that go with you know, having his friends on Earth. We have another scene a little bit later with Chiana. She's gone shopping and then he has to ask her, wait, you don't have any money. And she's like, I went shoplifting. (laughs) She's going to cause problems. And then she's sleeping with all his friends and then his dad. So there's like, you know, Chiana doesn't fit on Earth either. Stuff like that, that that come out in these little fantasies. Well, and actually, it's so funny, like the conversation he has with Chiana, because he gets really angry at her. And he's like, why can't you do what you always do, which is fit in? And I'm like, John, this is what she always does. This is how she fits in is she goes around, she sleeps with people, she kind of, and she finds people that will take care of her. Because John's dad then comes in and he's like the one that's going to be taking care of Chiana, like, you know, and I'm like, that's what she does. I mean, arguably, that's kind of what she ended up doing with Dargo was Mm -hmm. she was, you know, she was looking for somebody to take care of her until, you know, it got like a little bit too takey care of. And then she did it with John, too. You know, she's offered to sleep with him many times. And even though he refused, she still managed to have a relationship with him based on him watching out for her as kind of a big brother little sister relationship yeah the whole fantasy element is really him kind of him kind of taking those imaginings that we all have of like ooh, what if this happens or like what if that happens and you imagine your best case scenario is in him trying to like put these puzzle pieces together and him realizing that it's not even the same puzzle that these are pieces that are not going to fit together no matter how perfect of a world it is Mm mm-hmm yeah. 
And the next one that we actually get to see is between John and Dargo. And this one, it goes even a step further than the previous ones we've seen, because this one is actually interspersed with a real life conversation he and Dargo are having. So they have decided that they are going to support Moya's decision to kill the rogue Leviathan, and they've split up into different ships. So Aaron is going to go in the Prowler, and she's going to be a nuisance to the Leviathan to get its attention, while Dargo and John are going to be in his ship. Dargo is going to be shooting it with his super powerful weapon, and John is going to fly it with gloves on because only Lux and DNA can fly it, and we don't find out what Dargo covered all the surfaces with, but we don't need to know. Anyway, <laughs> it's this really cute little funny moment. So John and Dargo end up having a conversation both in his head, or they're on a pier where there's some kids fishing, and also in real life. And so it cuts between them. It's one that might be hard to follow in audio only, but we're going to try it anyway. And, you know, go back and watch the episode for reference if you need to. I understand it's difficult. It's not difficult. Yes, it is. Everybody thinks you're free. Everyone thinks I'm a freak. Hey, boys, how are they biting? Terrible, Mr. Dargo. Can you help again? See, they don't think I'm a freak. What the hell are you doing? What do you think I'm doing? I'm not entirely sure, but don't kill Aaron. I'm not going to kill anyone. Why are you so disagreeable? I'm not disagreeable. You are being disagreeable. I got things on my mind. I am sorry that Aaron is leaving you, but don't take it out on me. I heard she left you at the altar. Shut up! It's not just Aaron. You're all leaving. Whatever you thought you'd found a wormhole, you fell over yourself to dive in. Don't begrudge us our dreams. I don't. It's just a hell of a dream you got there, D, killing a man. I don't want to kill him. I just want revenge. What do you think you're doing? You know what all this is over, John? I think you should head straight for Earth. No, that's not an option. The peacekeepers would follow. Yeah, I should never have come here. I should never have come to Earth. I should have left you guys on Moya. Such a simple choice. Why are you agonizing over it? Because I'm an idiot. Yeah, you are an idiot. I'm an idiot. We're all idiots, aren't we, boys? Yeah. Everyone's an idiot. Speaking of idiots, that cannot be right. Ha! One shot. And you said I'd never fit in here. Never said that. Yes, you did. No one did. I remember you did. <laughs> I will admit, even with the visuals, this conversation was still a little hard to follow. Because this goes back to the whole John Harvey or John Scorpius clone, kind of before he became Harvey Harvey conversations where like sometimes you're like is he actually saying everything or like, is he having a full conversation in both in, in at least with the real Dargo? Cause the fantasy Dargo were at least like, okay, well he's a fantasy. So, but I don't know. It was a, it was good though, visually. Yeah. And there's a number of issues that finally get pulled to light in this an exchange. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you have John going back to earth and Dargo says, every time you've opened a wormhole, you never hesitated to go through it. Why are you hesitating now? This is what you've wanted since day one, to go back to Earth. And, which is true. And John's response is, I can't risk the peacekeepers coming. They're going to follow. And that's also been kind of popping up in his his dreams and other sequences. And then you have the other issue of all his friends are leaving and he doesn't want to be left alone. He's going to miss them. He loves them. He doesn't want to be left behind. And you know, Dargo's saying, you know what, I can't deal with that because we all have our own dreams and our lives that we want to get back to. And that's another theme that's been in play since day one. Season one was rife with them, you know, hurting each other <laughs> to get what they wanted so they could go home. And that is the other the other tension here. And then you have kind of the classic John and Dargo bickering that we've seen throughout season three with the Moya John and Dargo storyline. And also, you have John upset that Aaron is leaving and taking it out on Dargo, which I think he is true. And Dargo saying, no, like, you got to deal with that on your own. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is in both of the world, in both the fantasy and the real world, kind of the crux of John's issues is that Aaron is leaving him. And so what's interesting is that even in his fantasy world, Aaron is still leaving him. Like, that's kind of... That's like the big point for him is that Aaron is leaving and the whole earth versus friends versus Moya versus everything. Like it all kind of comes down to the fact that John's home is Aaron, which he's explicitly said multiple times. 
And she's leaving. And he doesn't know how to fix that. And he doesn't know what to do. Yeah. So this is what John has been grappling with. And it's going to resolve itself, obviously, later on. But first, let's finish the the Leviathan sequence, because I think this is the end point of it for the episode. So Chiana has been left on Moya. And John, before he left, said to Jewel, make sure you are with her, because she's going to be the one opening... overseeing Talon's burial and she's the one who bore him into this world she was the midwife and now she has to let him go and just just be there and I think that's a really really astute observation on John's part and really nice touch for Jewel to to be okay we're going to be there for you during this difficult moment so they release Talon's remains it enrages the Leviathan Aaron distracts and John and Dargo in the Luxon ship shoot it and it completely vaporizes it's like not even debris it is like so vaporized that they fly through it. And the Luxon ship has this really total weapon that mm-hmm. they were, didn't expect. They never fired it before. And at the end of it, we have Chiana and Rigel giving a eulogy for Talon that I want to play because it's, uh, it's really touching. Talon. <laughs> yeah. You were a protector. Mm. A family. Uh, may I say a few words? Yeah. He, he was a lost soul. Ten. So, <coughs> searching for a... Talon was special. A joy to his mother and a credit to his species. Both of them. With fondness, we lay Talon offspring of Moya to rest in his sacred ground. There's these two contrasts going on. You have Chiana, who is clearly a mourner, who is broken up. Jules holding her. She's crying. She's struggling for the words to come together about what Talon meant to her and to them. He was the protector. He was a little messed up, like they're messed up. They loved him anyway for all his faults. And then you have Rigel, who wasn't nearly as close to Talon in the same way, but who kind of gives that more, I don't know, preacher type. You know, you could mm-hmm. tell he's been a leader and an orator and it's like, okay, here's the obituary I have to give and, or, you know, here's the eulogy I have to give. But at the same time, it's like, it's not like Rigel's without feeling. I mean, mm-hmm. I can see Rigel in season one never have doing this at all and just kind of scoffing. It's like, well, we stripped him for the good parts, you know, but here he does, you know, mm-hmm. say very kind words about him. Although on the one hand, Rigel actually has spent more time with Talon than Chiana has because Rigel was on the Talon crew when they split off. So I think that Rigel actually does have a relationship with Talon. And I think though that Rigel also probably saw Talon's flaws. He just realizes that when somebody is dead, all you ever are allowed to say are really good things about them. (laughs) No, that's, that's definitely true. I didn't want to minimize his relationship. It's just the way he comes across you know, I think it shows as much Rigel's growth through mm-hmm. the series as anything is that he is willing to give this eulogy. Oh, yeah. No, it. I, I definitely agree that I think that Rigel from season one, I mean, let's remember his <laughs> air quotes eulogy for John <laughs> in Old Black Magic, you know, and compare it to this one where this one feels a lot more honest and this one feels like it's more for Moya's sake. Mm hmm. In this episode, Rigel refers to Moya a lot as old girl and like, you know, that kind of affectionate way he has with Moya, where we remember he spent a lot of time on Moya. And I think that he's kind of giving this eulogy for Moya's sake, you know? I like that. Yeah. yeah. And that he's trying to, you know, he he's trying to make it good for her because he understands that, you know, even though he was all for let's cut and run and just dump Talon somewhere else that you know you think is nice. (laughs) And yet now that they're here and now that they actually have put him in the sacred grounds, you know, he wants to make sure that Moya feels relieved, that this feels like a good ceremony for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I like that interpretation a lot. Yeah. And this also goes back to the thing you were talking about earlier, where Jewel is like explicitly holding Chiana, you know, she's like cradling her again. And they're, they have that relationship where, you know, this is not the Jewel and Chiana from very beginning of season, mm-hmm. you know, three. And she also had an interaction with Dargo before he went off with John, where she said, you're going to be killing someone. And Dargo was like, yeah, I've done that before. And she was kind of like, no, I just, 
this is probably going to be hard for you. You're going to be killing somebody. And I just want you to think about that. And yeah, because the difference here is this Leviathan has every reason to be upset. She's Mm -hmm. lost three children to the peacekeepers and she is just completely grief stricken. It's not like she's, she she is harming other people, but she's coming from a place where you understand why she is hurting the way she's hurting. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's the difference between them going after her as opposed to other people that they've killed. Because they've killed a lot of people, but most of them were bad guys or, you know, peacekeepers, even though, you, you know, it's just like there is no she is not a bad guy. She is a tortured yeah. soul. And they're kind of putting her out of her misery. It's almost a mercy kill. I mean, they have to save themselves, too. But at the same time, you know, it's it's not the same as other people that they've killed. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So then Rigel begins rejoicing because now that this Leviathan is dead, it kind of is like the end. You know, they've laid Talon to rest. The peacekeepers aren't after them anymore. You know, no one is chasing them. And they all have information about their home worlds. So they're allowed to go home. Yeah, that's the big difference between this season finale and seasons one and two is that there's no one chasing them, right? Mm-hmm. They have no Crace, they have no Scorpius, and all that they have are going their separate ways. And I, that's the big that's the big tonal shift that there mm-hmm. really does feel like the closeout of a storyline with Scorpius losing his command carrier and his power and his status and his ability to create wormholes. And even his will to create wormholes, it almost seems like, you know, he's like mm-hmm. so crushed by the by the destruction of the command carrier at the end of Into the Lion's Den. It is a different type of ending that we get here where it really does feel like there's a real new beginning on the other side of it for everybody. And they're not together with it. So on that note, we come back to John and his continual struggle with what it what he wants. And he ends up going to talk to the old woman in the center chamber. And we find out, one, where she comes from, the whole thing where she's a, from the command carrier and didn't leave. And she points out that all of these fantasies he's been having and his whole perception of, you know, what he wants and what is actually possible you know, the worst part of it is the lies that we tell ourselves as opposed to the lies we tell other people. Because she's been witnessing him trying to interact with everybody and not really keep it together. And so John has this really self-reflective moment that I want to play that kind of gets into where his head has been. When I was a kid, I dreamed of outer space. And then I got here, and I dream of Earth. Lately, none of my dreams work. Do you know why? (sighs) Trying to make it the way it was, the way it never was. Did my herbs help you? They stripped away the lies, but I ran from it. And I am so tired of running. And then right after that, he asks her to give the herbs again. And then there's this this brutal scene of the peacekeepers coming to the wedding and massacring everyone. But about that quote, the part that I really found interesting was John, you know, finally articulating what his major conflict is, which we've talked about, but also that he's tired of running because Mm -hmm. it reminded me a lot of the look at the princess trilogy where, you know, he gives up in the middle where he's like, Scorpius is going to dissect my brain. I have this choice to get away from that by marrying Katrala. And he just gives up and he's kind of running away from the problem. He's not dealing with Scorpius by going for this other out because he's so scared. And so I feel like this is kind of on the other end of that, where he's at the point where he doesn't want to take the easy out. He wants to actually confront the problem that he's having. And that's why he asks for the herbs. And that's why he ends up talking even more with Norianti about what it all means. What it really goes back to for me is that moment earlier where she's trying to explain to John why the lies that we tell ourselves are so insidious. And 
how he is just at this point where he's tired. Aaron is leaving and he doesn't quite understand why, but he knows why. Like it's kind of this weird feeling he has of like, why can't we all just stay the way we want to be forever? And in some ways it reminds me of growing up. Mm -hmm. Like when you, when you grow up and you re and you're kind of in that moment right in between childhood and adulthood where you're like, why can't it just be like this forever? You know, he wants to continue to be able to have both because Mm -hmm. when he didn't have wormholes, there was always the possibility of earth. Now he has wormholes, so he has earth. And now he has to decide, is he going to choose his friends and kind of this carefree existence? I mean, not really carefree, but it feels like, hey, we're all just friends on this big ship. And it's really easy to kind of forget that there were so many times that they're driving each other insane. And there are so many times where we've discussed, like, (laughs) these are roommates where you cannot leave, you know. For me, I don't know, it just really kind of felt like that weird emotion that you have when you're a child, like, just on the cusp of adulthood. You know, like, when you're, like, 12 or 13 and, like, it's a Mm -hmm. summer and you just want to be with your friends forever, but you know that something else is coming next. And that's kind of where he is. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, he articulates this again after the the scene with the massacre, which is, oh my God, it's just so hard to watch because you see everybody in their wedding clothes and it's just straight up a massacre. Scorpius walks in at the end of it because John can never fully get away from Scorpius. So he tells the story of the dog with two bones to uh, the old woman. Basically, it's a dog with the bone in its mouth and it sees a reflection and wants the the other dog's bone and drops it and he can't have both so he loses both bones and that's how john feels and i really love the old woman's response here where basically she says mm-hmm. john Crichton, you are not a freaking dog make a choice and then follow through on it but that's the kick in the pants he needs to actually say and realize and not really realize he knows but to actually decide that, yes, he's going to fight for what he wants. And what he wants is Aaron. Yeah. So then he packs his stuff and she's packing up her prowler and he goes and he confronts her. And let's play it. Okay. Here we go. This is like the best scene of the entire episode. I'm coming with you. No, I'm sorry. Well, you're not leaving without me. What do you want? You. I'm afraid it's not that easy for me. You see, you died. I watched that happen and yet you're still alive. I have to go. Then say goodbye. We don't take goodbyes. We do this time. You see, you leave and then you come back and I I can't handle the in-between. Aaron, say goodbye. Fine. Goodbye, Crichton. John, my name is John. Goodbye, John, to my face. Guarantee you won't die in my arms again. Guarantee me you won't die in mine. I can, by leaving. Do you love John Crichton? Not him. Not me. John Crichton. I just got to say, the emotion on their faces as they go through this really, really painful conversation. And at the same time, I'm so proud of them for talking Mm -hmm. about their main fundamental issue, which is that Aaron lost him and can't watch him die again. And John watched her leave and come back and nearly went crazy in the interim. And they both want each other and he desperately just wants to be with her and she can't handle the uncertainty of what might happen to them in the future. Mm -hmm. And it's just so heartbreaking because it's still so fresh, you know, it's not like the pain has had time to dull with time at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that's true. And I also think that, I think that when Jewel called out Aaron earlier in the episode on not regressing, this really feels like a regression because this is Aaron season one of like, I'm feeling an emotion. I'm going to run away from it. 
you know, that's what it felt like to me, at least, was I'm like, this is not the Aaron season two, season three, you know, who at least was like, hmm, emotions, maybe I will stick around and see what this means. I, I don't know. I, I'm sympathetic to Aaron, but I find this whole scene very hard to be that sympathetic with her. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like, I get it. And I get where she's coming from. But at the same time, I'm like, this is... I don't know. I I just really struggle with this. And like, don't worry, like Aaron soon, the radiant Aaron soon is like my goddess, my like one, (laughs) my like favorite character in the entire universe. But at the same time, I'm like, Aaron, you're making a mistake. Stop it. Yeah. But at the same time, she is still leaving the door open because John demands from her, say goodbye this time. And Aaron says, we don't say goodbye with the implication being, we don't say goodbye because we're going to get back together. Mm-hmm. You know, and so she's shutting him out, but she's not closing the door. And I, I really like that callback to the very first season when they say when they don't say goodbye at the end of season one. And we see it multiple times throughout when they have these really big momentous things that they have to go do. The difference being, though, is that goes back to your point, is that before they were they were running a mission, they were executing a plan they were doing a thing that they had no choice to do here it is all about choice and i think that's what makes it so wrenching it is aaron's choice to leave and it is john's choice to try and go with her because he doesn't want her to leave and oh it's just so juicy yeah well i mean and i think john's point of okay so you don't get to say goodbye like you get to pretend that we will get back together someday but I'm the one left here on Moya who has to deal with the aftermath, which I just don't think is emotionally fair for John. And I think it's good he's finally calling her out because John has John is the more emotionally adept of them. And we've talked multiple Mm -hmm. times about he's the one that like emotions come easy to. And so I think it's good he's finally standing up for himself. You know, like, I think it's good that he's finally saying emotionally, I need a goodbye because I can't keep doing this thing where you get to go and you get to leave and I'm left stuck wondering what's going on. I'm left stuck waiting. Yeah, absolutely. And so after she says yes to loving John Crichton, which I just realized you hadn't talked about either, but I feel like this is a moment where it's finally the two Johns coming back together into one person Mm -hmm. in their heads. We talked a little bit about that in uh, The End of Fractures, but here it really feels like it crystallizes because he says, not him, not me, just John Crichton. And she says, yes. And that's like, that's like the heart of it. So she definitely still loves him. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not the other one. And he kisses her. I mean, this it's a very slow, she doesn't want to kiss him, but they kiss very briefly. And here's the other half of the conversation after that kiss. Then what does that taste like? Yesterday. Huh. Well, nobody can compete with that. I am so much better, Dad. I can't do this again. Should I can't let the one thing I love fly away in a crappy little ship? You once said it was as if the fates meant for us to be together. And I believe that. Well, then if it's true, we will be together again. Running away is not fate, Aaron. Running away is running away. Fine, you want fate. Here, I've, I've got fate. Fate, here. What? Coin toss. What, like that side up? You stay. Absolutely. Faint. Just make a filling wormhole and go home. There is no home. There is no wormhole. There's only you. Anywhere in the universe, you picked a planet. It's too late for that. It's not too late. No, you're not listening to me. It's too late for me. You do this, and we'll never see each other again. Do you love Aaron's son? Beyond hope. Then don't make me say goodbye, and don't make me stay. That sound you don't hear is my heart breaking. 
Uh, <laughs> I know. I love that they're both explicitly confessing needs because that's mm-hmm. something that they really haven't been doing. And this is the first time in a really long time that their needs have been so incompatible. Yeah. She needs the space and he needs to be with her and they can't make it work. And just, oh, the, it. this is where he calls her out again on the running away and then the whole fate thing. Like, I don't know. I've I've never known how to really think about the fate thing because obviously this is a scripted television show. And how do you think about fate in your own life, in the real world? And it's something that I don't really like mm-hmm. put a lot of stock in. I mean, I, there's definitely elements of randomness to the universe that happen and put people in these positions to be with each other. But at the same time, I'm also a big believer in making your own moments. Mm-hmm. And the coin toss just, just gets me every time because, because it's just like we're going to not be together based on a coin toss when we could be together. And I think mm-hmm. that's both of their points there. Right. Because the first time John says it, he suggests that he's angry and it's like, I'm trying to make a choice. You're not letting me. OK, fine. We're going to do it your way. And then she doesn't let the coin flip the first time. Right. She catches it. Mm-hmm. She doesn't let it be a random chance. And so I feel like there's kind of these two layers of on the one hand, they're talking about about leaving it up to fate but they don't want to because they want to be together again. And Aaron's last line of don't make me say goodbye, leaving that door open, but also don't make me stay with the implication that she'd come back. Yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing about the coin toss is that it's okay. So maybe it's fate if you believe in fate, but it's also chance. And it's, and I think that it's also a third person that they can use, you know, like this is one of those times when Aaron feels like she knows what she needs But she also is like conflicted. She's very conflicted about going or staying. And John is also very conflicted because on the one hand, he wants to give her what she's asking him for because he loves her. And when you love somebody and when the person you love is like, I need space, you give them space. So what they're doing by putting this coin in is really just bringing in a third party and being like, neither one of us want to make this decision. So we're going to let this imaginary third party of fate make that decision for us because I I don't know my thing about fate is yeah okay scripted tv shows so like oh yeah they're fated to be together but on the other hand both of these characters have worked have put in the work to be together you know that's what makes real relationships succeed is work so I kind of feel like I don't know I don't know how I feel about fate either I guess is my point (laughs) (laughs) but when you say putting in the work I think that's why this pairing and this couple and this show are so amazing as a romance story Mm -hmm. because they have explicitly shown their growth how they've grown toward each other how they've made each other better people over time how they've come to get together and get past their own fears and insecurities and feelings and I think that's what's so frustrating about the coin toss because at the end of that conversation Aaron kicks the coin back to John and he flips it mm-hmm. and we never see the outcome of that flip but there's still that uncertainty and and luck and and fate where they they have to come to an agreement about what's going to happen mm-hmm. and i think that might be what's so frustrating about the coin toss because they have worked so hard to be together and yet they aren't making it without the help of the coin yeah yeah, I, I don't know. I guess maybe we're just going to have to disagree on this one because to me it kind of felt like like two people who had kind of reached the end of their breaking points and where they were mm-hmm. just like, we don't want to make this decision anymore. We are tired of making decisions. We're going to yeah. let somebody else make this decision. Yeah, I don't think I disagree with that. I think I'm speaking more from a viewer perspective yeah. rather than the two of them perspective. From John and Aaron's perspective, I think I would agree that it's not a bad decision for them to base on a coin toss. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. Yeah, because then like as a viewer, though, I do agree with you that as a viewer, you're like, we've been here with the push and pull for three seasons now. We are done with the push and the pull. You know, this is not Mulder and Scully. Like we cannot last. How many seasons (laughs) was it? Like eight? I don't know. I stopped watching. Something like that. I stopped too. But yeah, so it was like, you know, we can't do the whole you know, back and forth forever. 
you know, especially after they got together. Like we see, we saw them mm-hmm. get together. <laughs> so then the episode yeah. ends with John floating out in space, and he he rehears in his module. He rehears all the goodbyes that everybody said, and all of them were very touching. Reminded me a lot of Family Ties. Yeah, and then he has Aaron saying goodbye to him. She explicitly says goodbye, which kind of gave him what he wanted. He wanted a solid ending and he got a solid ending. Yeah. And she echoes some of the things he said to her, like fly safe. And then she, she goes. And so John is in his module and the episode isn't done yet. Yeah. (laughs) We have one last little scene and it's Harvey showing up behind John to say, the subconscious is a funny thing. And look what I found here that the old woman told you while you were drugged. And she says a few things about forgiving Aaron and letting her take her own time. And also that Aaron is with child. Yep. So that's a bomb. <laughs> I will and- admit, I'm not a huge fan of that reveal. Um, I love, don't get me wrong. You know, this is a little bit of a spoiler. I do love where the Aaron pregnancy plotline ends up going, but I mostly love it in Peacekeeper Wars. I am not, I'm just not a huge fan of it here because I feel like, their whole relationship is already so fraught. Adding a child to it adds this like level of controlliness that I'm not like a huge fan of. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Pregnancy plots are always, I find difficult sometimes to watch because it. I don't want to say it's, it's contrived because, I mean, it's a little contrived, but I don't know. It adds an element of possessiveness to some characters that I don't always appreciate. Yeah. And I think you see that here with John a little bit in his reaction where he's like, Pilot, we have to go after Aaron immediately, you know? And Pilot does attempt to. He listens. But then I'm just going to go ahead and finish out that part of it. There's a wormhole that opens up and sucks Pilot through it. And so now John is left hanging in his module, knowing that Aaron is pregnant with no fuel in his module mm-hmm. and no friends anywhere or even a place to live so yeah so he is left with this really exceedingly difficult information to live with while he's alone Mm -hmm. yeah i think that maybe that's what that's what bugs me about it is that like after john and aaron had this whole fraught conversation of like them deciding like we're better off apart for a little while to try and figure out if aaron can if Aaron can open her heart again to John and to see if John can maybe move on, if John can find a new home or, you know, like anything. And then it's like, Oh, she's pregnant. I'm going to go after her, you know? And I'm like, (laughs) that's what I think why the introduction, I don't, I'm not arguing that that wouldn't be John's reaction given that John has been searching for a home. And to be honest, a child very much is like this, you know, for a lot of people, your child becomes, the child becomes the center of their universe, you know? Everything Mm -hmm. they do after their child is conceived becomes like for their child. So I'm like, I'm not arguing that John, who is a compass in need of a northern point, you know, he's in need of a pole, that he wouldn't do everything for his child. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, come on, guys. I think there are less cheap ways to do it than like, oh, Aaron's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could could agree agree with that. But it is a really good cliffhanger. Yep. And it is a really good place, I think, to go afterwards because they have already gotten together. So what's the next step? Obviously a child is the next step. Uh, I mean, it's kind of that relationship progression kind of thing. I also think the interesting thing is it's Talon John's child and not this John's child. Mm -hmm. So we will discuss that much more, I think, in season four. Yeah. So what would you give this episode? For me, this episode is a five. I love this episode. The emotional stuff works really well. And I think that after three seasons of really intense season finales like really adrenaline field season finales that this quieter season finale that still ends with like as big a cliffhanger as season one like it really works for me yeah I would also give it a five and I think the other thing I really like about it in addition to the things you mentioned is also the humor I just love the running gag that the old woman is like this random person that is on their ship and they don't know why (laughs) You know, and they're not a hundred percent like when she came aboard or like where she came from. <laughs> it's just this great little thing, and that's what really it's essential. Farscape this, you yeah. know, it's like there's a quintessential feeling and tone you get from her inclusion that I I really love. 
Um, on Wardrobe Watch, um, we have everyone pretty much in their regular costumes. Mm-hmm. I think Jewel has her hair in a ponytail, and that's the biggest change. Mm-hmm. Though we can mention the outfits and the wedding sequences. Everyone's, you know, dressed very nicely. And Except for, like, Jewel, who's wearing, like, such 90s clothing. <gasps> I was like, ugh, no. She's also wearing pink with her hair. It just doesn't quite work. It doesn't work at all. <laughs> so next week, we're doing our season recap. Join us for season three, our overall thoughts, some of your comments. Yeah, we'll see you then. If you want to get in touch with us, we are Farscape Friday Podcast at gmail.com. We are also Farscape Friday Podcast at Tumblr and Dreamwith. And we are Farscape Friday on Twitter. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.